This is the Mathematics Education Podcast from MathEdPodcast.com. Welcome to the MathEd Podcast. My name is Sam Otten from the University of Missouri, and today I am joined by Dr. Susan Friel, who's a professor of mathematics education in the School of Education at the University of North Carolina in Chapel Hill. Susan, thanks so much for being here. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you. We are going to be looking back over Susan's career in mathematics education as she begins her phased retirement at UNC. (laughs) So let's go ahead and start back at the beginning. A lot of your work has focused on empowering learners to make sense of mathematics, and you've done that in various ways that we'll look at over the course of this conversation. But I want to actually go back to when you were a learner of mathematics, and what were your experiences like in mathematics before you decided to pursue advanced study? Were you making sense of the math? Uh, Were you struggling it, or is, is that what inspired you to then try to help other students make sense of and understand mathematics conceptually? Uh, That's a great question, because when I think back to K-12, I was in what they would call an advanced eighth grade class, an advanced algebra, now you take algebra all the time, Mm -hmm. and I remember just basically math boring me to tears. Mm -hmm. It was a rote procedure, if I could do this, I could study it, and so actually I wasn't particularly engaged in math, Mm -hmm. and when I went on to college few people know this, I never took a math course when I was in college. Oh, wow. (laughs) Even though I majored in economics, business administration. (laughs) Um, And it wasn't that I couldn't do math. It was just that it it wasn't particularly interesting to me. Yeah, it was not enticing. (laughs) No, there was no no sense making. It was Mm -hmm. rote procedure. I was very good at that. But um, I didn't see any reason to to be engaged in it. Mm -hmm. So So then how do you go from that to eventually having a career in mathematics education? Like, what was the moment when you decided to kind of go into advanced study and pursue a career in mathematics education? Oh, that's a great question. Um, When I came to Boston after I graduated from Elmira College, I came with a roommate from Elmira College who was working at Perkins School for the Blind, and so she was being a teacher. And I got a job in the estate and inheritance tax division of the Boston Safe Deposit and Trust Company in Boston. Okay. <laughs> it was a great job because there were a lot of young people like me, so I found a lot of young people to have a good time with in Boston. But the job itself was pretty boring. Mm-hmm. And I would watch my roommate who was working with educating students. And I remember in my senior year in college, I'd taken one education course. And I think I just decided at one point, I think I want to go into elementary teaching. Hmm. Leslie College at the time had a summer program. Massachusetts would certify you having 18 credits to be a teacher. The summer program involves student teaching. So I quit my job. Mm. I thought I had enough money to survive the summer. I didn't quite have enough. (laughs) And I took an eight-week summer student teaching experience with Leslie College. I had taken a couple courses this year before. Got my 18 credits, was certified to teach elementary school, Mm. and went into teaching sixth grade, not even math, it was social studies and language arts in uh, Braintree, Massachusetts, and very quickly learned that I knew nothing about teaching when I was Mm. there. Six weeks wasn't enough? No. (laughs) (laughs) And a little summer student teaching experience definitely wasn't enough. I I like to characterize the fact that I was a lateral entry teacher, Mm -hmm. and I really Mm -hmm. didn't know what I was doing. So I went to Leslie, the master's program, and people have been the moving force in my life. I encountered Dr. Marks by Kell. And my older colleagues will probably remember who he was. He, mm-hmm. he finished his career at George Mason University. 
And he was the one that became my mentor. Mm. He taught a math course that involved using manipulatives, making sense of mathematics through attribute blocks, base 10 blocks. How do you teach students to make that kind of sense as well? Mm-hmm. And so I started to, oh, I got so engaged and so excited. And I moved from Braintree to Lexington, Massachusetts to teach fifth and sixth grade there. And across the hall from me, there was a fully equipped library of manipulatives that nobody used, but that I now knew how to use. Oh, wow. And I got totally engaged working with the lower learners, the upper learners that I had, because I shared the math teaching on a team of four people. Um, And I just brought in all the manipulatives, and I would use them, and I would engage with them. Hmm. Uh, Very early on, even in Braintree, I found I couldn't stand up and run a whole class in a math lesson. Mm Mm-hmm because I simply didn't know what was happening to the individual students. So even then, I started to write my own curriculum, and it was Mimeo sheets copied from textbooks, Xerox, and put in file folders so the kids could progress at their own pace. It was a kind of individualized learning without even a lot of intelligence behind it. But that way, I could get them to work at their pace, and I could work with them as they were working. So I had mm-hmm. a way of connecting with them and knowing what they were thinking. Mm-hmm. So even before I knew paying attention to student thinking was something that mattered in teaching, I found the only way I could operate was doing that. Mm-hmm. And then when I got to Leslie, Mark Spikel again, he encouraged me to pursue my doctorate at Boston University, And then he hired me to teach Hmm. math at Leslie College and Mm -hmm. to work with training the uh, students there who wanted to be elementary math specialists. And the courses we were ran were like he had done with manipulatives. So any geometry course, stack course, or anything like that Mm -hmm. was done that way. Yeah. I think that's a powerful combination, though, of not only the manipulatives and trying to give students opportunities to make sense of the ideas, but then also, as a teacher, you trying to make sense of the students' ideas and make sure you knew where they were and they were in their thinking. And I think putting both of those together is probably the that's when the sparks were really flying or things were happening. Right, and then I decided I wanted to study math, and of course I had to take... <clears throat> I have the equivalent of 24 credits in math, uh, so I have an undergraduate major in math in terms of credits, but I had to take math courses at BU, ones that, again, theory of equations, those kind of courses, mm-hmm. which I did all right in, but again, they... They were meaningless to my purposes to some degree. However, having the depth of background was important. At that point, I encountered another very important, two more important people, Dr. Carol Greenis, who became my doctoral advisor, who had a significant impact on the directions that I did. And then uh, Dr. William Henneman, who was in the computer science department, who had been a mathematician and worked in computer science, had studied at MIT, and was willing to take me on with a number of independent studies in computer science because I wanted to learn more about computers. Mm -hmm. And he helped us get computer courses started at Leslie, working with the students at the time, so that we eventually worked into a computer literacy program and eventually a computers and ed program at Leslie College, and he was my spark for that as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I noticed you had several publications in the 1980s that were related to computers and education. And obviously computers have come a long way since the 80s. And one of the things that's happening right now is online education. I know at the University of Missouri we have an online master's degree for teachers. And you know online courses are being developed more so than in the past. And you're involved at UNC in online course development and like you mentioned as a teacher, kind of planning your own curriculum because you wanted the certain experiences for the students. Now you're working on planning curriculum for online settings or online courses. I wonder if you wanted to speak to how you're thinking about or how you're approaching online course design. Oh, I'd love to try. We have a program called the Elementary Math Add-on Licensure Program 
in North Carolina that has gone through a long evolution, has involved six or seven different universities, developed under the auspices of general administration for the university system. Uh, Sid Rockland at ECU was uh, charged with leadership of it. And in the end, what we came up with was a series of six courses in this program that combined content and high leverage practices. Finally, we're approved by the State Board of Education to be an add-on license for certified elementary teachers. Mm -hmm. And in the development of that, the original intent was once the courses were designed, and, and we did it with the seven different universities, we all have the same course names on our books. Mm -hmm. Then we did a couple of pilots that were face-to-face -face in two different counties, which I worked in, where we just taught the courses live. Uh, but Sid had always made a commitment that he would turn these into an online program. Mm -hmm. So we have various ways they're being done. Appalachian State does a hybrid of face-to-face -face and online. UNC Charlotte does all online. UNC Greensboro does online. Uh, NC State does only face-to-face. -face. So we have different groups doing things. Mm -hmm. But UNC Chapel Hill, East Carolina University, and UNC Wilmington managed to pull off. We're in our third memorandum of agreement between our three universities to co-offer these courses and share the teaching of them. Oh. We offer these courses every other week for three hours, synchronous online. So mm -hmm. it's asynchronous and synchronous. I know a lot of people don't do that. I can't imagine not teaching synchronously. I love it. I mm -hmm. get more in-depth knowledge about student thinking that way than I ever got in a face-to-face -face class. Hmm. So you're saying like the synchronous online setting is not only preferential in your mind to the asynchronous online, but it even has some advantages over in-person face-to-face. Right. Is it because you can get submissions or see um, things being contributed by all the students at once and kind of, uh, or what would you say are the specific benefits? Oh, that's a good question. Um, we basically, the three institutions have come to the agreement that you have an online session, then you have a synchronous and another online session. And the synchronous session is what we call a bridging session. It is never to be a lecture session. Mm -hmm. It's a session where the students have lots of opportunities to talk about something they may have done, mm -hmm. to solve a problem together with you watching, to talk about things they're getting ready to do. You mm -hmm. do lots of small group work. So in my synchronous sessions, typically they may have done a blog the week before. I bring in samples of their blogs, and that's one of the things that they discuss in their mm -hmm. small groups. And fortunately, I can pick the samples I want so I can raise the issues I want through yeah. their material. Yeah. I give them a problem to solve. I put them in small groups. They do it on the whiteboard. We come back to the whole group, and they share it out. The last course has a leadership component in it, and they had to mentor student teachers. Uh, not student teachers, a beginning teacher. They had to do a professional development session. So I would make these images of, there were 13 students in that class, of 13 students sitting in a circle. I would put it up on the screen in the Blackboard Collaborate meeting software. Mm -hmm. And I said, right, everybody has to talk now. And I would say, let's talk about your mentoring. What have you been doing with young teachers that you're working with? And we would have these wonderful discussions. Mm -hmm. Contrary to opinion, people think that everybody's willing to share in an online synchronous session. They are if you put them in small groups. Mm -hmm. But if you have a group of anywhere from 20 to 13 students sitting there in a whole group session, mm -hmm. and you want them to answer a question you pose, they will not raise a hand, they will not share, mm -hmm. and they don't like you to call on them. Mm -hmm. So I've had to strategically think of ways to push them to make them jump in and actually do some sharing and things yeah. like that. But yeah. um, 
when they go into small groups, if I go in to listen to them, you can hear much more the confusions they have when they try to read an article or if they really don't understand the math. If you go next to a group in a face-to-face class, mm-hmm. they get self-conscious. Somehow yeah. they don't get self-conscious when you go uh, into an online group. Yeah. And I never have more than two or three in a group. And so it's really given me access to yeah. thinking about them. So you can kind of listen in more efficiently and maybe more stealthily. <laughs> um, but also I wonder if they if there's more demands on their communication because they are... They have a shared whiteboard space and they can hear each other, but they don't have maybe the same body language or they don't have maybe some of the same like uh, nonverbal kinds of communication because they're online. So maybe that forces them to actually articulate more what really they're trying to say or what's on their mind because that way somebody else who's in a totally another location can respond to it. And maybe that forcing them to have to articulate their ideas in that way is actually a good thing because it gets the ideas out and it allows you to see them more and it allows the others to hear those ideas more. And in face-to-face, you can kind of rely on sort of the, oh, I kind of know what you mean, or like, oh, I'm just looking at you and I'm just going to nod anyway. (laughs) Well, that's true. That's very true. And also, um, as they've gotten better at it, when they come to be online, so this last course, they had modeling problems to do because that's the math content. And a few times I made them work in groups of four outside class uh, for two sets of problems. And, And each time, one group of four got in touch with me and said, will you set up a Blackboard Collaborate session for us so we can work? Mm-hmm. So I would always set the session up and then hang around in case they need some help. Mm-hmm. But their biggest goal is to get together to talk, and then they can share their desktop so that the rest of the group can see the written oh, right. work they're doing together, mm-hmm. and they use Google Docs when yeah. they're doing it. And so they have some of the richest discussions. And I can always videotape a Blackboard yeah. Collaborate session, so I always videotape their private sessions, but I always videotape my class sessions, too. Right, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So now you can actually revisit it later. And, right. Or you can make it available to the students to revisit that conversation because it happened right. in Collaborate. Right. I am going to say one more thing about online, then I'll leave it. In terms of curriculum planning, there are some leading authors that have written um, that talk about the real focus is on how you design curriculum for your students. And it's not just a repeat of what you do in your face-to-face, but your whole study of your pedagogy. You become a way with, as a, wholly, a totally different person thinking mm. about instruction and learning and designing curriculum. And the biggest thing in math is how do you do the things we do, like problem solving, student discourse, all of those things. How do you do those in online, both asynchronous and synchronous sessions? We've actually developed some very interesting techniques and strategies to do that, but it's not trivial to say, how do you create that Mm -hmm. kind of learning in that kind of environment? Yeah, it makes you approach that problem in a new way. It's like, Mm -hmm. oh, I know that I want them to do this problem solving. I know I want them to have rich discussions. But before, I might sort of do it Um, naturally and I don't have to really reflect on what I'm doing because I'm just kind of trying to pull it off face to face but in online it's like oh no I really need to stop and think about how I'm going to achieve this and why I'm achieving it and what's going to come out of it you're absolutely right yeah Yeah. so following up on this idea of designing curriculum or you know creating experiences for learners I want to ask you about the connected mathematics project Um, you've been very involved in that project for years um, based in Michigan State and people can listen to uh, the interview with Glenda Lappin and she talked a little bit about connected mathematics as well I'll put a link in the show notes for this so just speaking from your personal experience what have been some of the highlights or what has it been like for you to work on connected mathematics uh, that has to be the, one of the epitome top things of my career, oh, that wow. having, having had that opportunity. I had met Glenda through the Professional Standards for Teaching Mathematics NCTM project, where she had been head of that. 
And then she and Bill Fitzgerald and Betty Phillips had developed a set of curriculum materials for middle grades. I had worked on uh, Use Numbers curriculum, which was a set of stat materials for elementary. And Jim Fay had worked on an algebra program for secondary. And Jim and Glenda, Betty, and Bill decided they wanted to go for one of the NSF curriculum grants for middle school mathematics. Mm -hmm. And they invited me to join them from the elementary perspective, and they invited Jim to join them from the secondary perspective. And that was one of the most amazing experiences to do that. And we've had three rounds of the curriculum now. The first and the second round were supported through NSF when we did it. And then the third round was something that we did. Um, we were just beginning to do a little revision, and then Common Core came out, so we had to do some major revising, but mm-hmm. we didn't have grant funding to do that. Okay. The Michigan State people, in their curriculum that they had done before, had this launch explore summarize model, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. which became the epitome of our lesson plan structure. Mm-hmm. And it was Tom Romberg who gave voice to this. There really wasn't a research methodology attached to curriculum development at that point. And I was at a Research One institution who didn't like to count curriculum development Hmm. towards research. Mm -hmm. And I was going to have to go argue for tenure in terms of thinking about what we had been doing. Mm -hmm. And um, Tom Romberg brought in Kino Gravemeyer's work on design-based research. That's the first time I had ever heard of that. Mm -hmm. I have followed it avidly now for many years. I've had two doc students do design-based research studies now. And I could argue that the way we set up our even our first project, but our second one too, and our third one to a much smaller extent, we set up a, a modified design research-based methodology where we had multiple sites across the country. The teachers would come in for professional development. They would go off and teach the units. There were observers there that would observe what was going on. The observers would give us feedback. The teachers would give us feedback, and we'd do revisions of the unit. Hmm. So it, was, it wasn't true design-based research in the in the much smaller sense because we were on a much ma- more massive scale. Yeah. And the fourth ed- and the third edition was not like that, but the first and second editions were like that where we really did this design-based research methodology. Mm. What was interesting is how heavily we emphasized if you look at CMP over the three rounds, the very first one was very open-ended problem-solving work. Mm-hmm. And as the curriculum and evaluation standards pose problems for teachers on how do we run that kind of classroom, yeah. our curriculum was in response to the curriculum and evaluation standards. And so it was hard for teachers to know how to run more open-ended problems and how could you get the mathematics that the students were supposed to do that. And even though we had teachers' editions that were very specifically developed to ha- handle that, when we came back for the second edition, and that's why we got funding, we came back with the proposal that we would try to make them a bit more focused in terms of the work the students did so the teachers could make decisions to follow the focused set of questions we provided or back up and be more open-ended if they wanted to. Mm -hmm. But it gave them much more of a direction to be able to do that when they were doing it. Mm -hmm. And then in the third edition, we were actually struggling a lot with how do we respond to the Common Core. Now, coming in, the other thread that I've been involved in since the early 90s is statistics education. So when I came in, I came in from the use numbers background, and I had actually been involved in a software development project through both Brannick and Newman, a piece of software called Elastic by Andy Rubin, which I had been exploring and things like that. So I came into the Michigan group, and 
it looked like statistics was the only area that the rest of them didn't want to claim. Mm. And I felt very comfortable doing that. So yeah. I basically took over the leadership for all the statistics modules that we've had all the way through. The first two editions reflected the fact that K-5 was doing statistics. Mm-hmm. I think the greatest loss of the Common Core is the fact that we don't have much statistics being done in K-5. And mm-hmm. then 6-8 has gone to this much more advanced view of statistics, you know, the measures yeah. of variability, the MAD, the three measures of center and their related measures of variability and how you do that. Mm-hmm. I think we developed some nice activities in the last edition, but it wasn't without struggle to figure out what are tasks that could work. And mm-hmm. our biggest dilemma is we didn't have many teachers who could try it. Mm-hmm. But fortunately, in the last, um, not this year, but the last two years before this, there was a teacher in Buffalo who really loves statistics like I do. She taught mm-hmm. seventh grade, and her sixth grade people weren't doing her sixth grade module. So I had met her, and she said, well, what can you tell me about what they should do in sixth grade so I could do the seventh grade unit uh, with more fidelity? So we laid out a map of the sixth grade problems that would let her look at the, the content from common core sixth grade Mm -hmm. that was the foundation to seventh grade and for two years she and i worked together we have a draft article that i have to get into nctm at some point soon (laughs) talking about the measures of variability and Mm. the measures of center and her sample work using the mean mean absolute deviation is not a hard thing for kids it's the median and the interquartile range in the box plot area that's the dilemma it's that Uh, It's a hard concept for students to get. But the mean absolute deviation is not a hard concept to get. Hmm. And we found a great problem context that I got into. Well, it was waiting in supermarket store lines. And then I said to myself, kids don't care about waiting in supermarket store lines. So we turned it into (laughs) waiting in amusement park lines. Mm -hmm. And the problem was the average wait time is 25 minutes. But Susie waited 40 minutes. How is that possible? And so you could look at a distribution of 10 scores, and you could say, well, what's the typical, what's the mm-hmm. mean average wait time? Mm-hmm. And the more I thought about it, the more I, so we had three different, four different problems. They get it when we do it that way. Mm. Uh, you go to amusement parks, and they say the average wait time is this, and I still think the next statistic should be, and the mad is this, because <laughs> uh, we even posed it there. And there's a, yeah. when I drive through uh, from Chapel Hill on up to West Jefferson, the hospital in Winston-Salem has a sign on the highway that says, in the emergency room, the mean wait time is this. Mm-hmm. And I keep saying, you need to have the mat up there also. <laughs> I know you should have standard deviation. but And we do do standard deviation in eighth grade. But mm-hmm. in terms of the mean absolute deviation, having some merit, it does yeah, have some yeah, merit. Yeah, yeah. So. Hmm. so I took over doing the stat part of that, too. And in the end, I, I worked with a teacher, Jim Mamer in Ohio, actually, piloted several of our stat units because as you learned from my early experience I can't do anything without seeing it in action so if I'd write a statistics unit they would test it out in different sites but what I really had to do was to go out and see it tested so we did major research projects videotaped in teaching mm-hmm. Ashton Levy from England mm-hmm. uh, it actually did research with me and we studied Jim Amer teaching our statistics mm-hmm. so and are you still looking for this kind of idea of student sense-making um, to kind of connect back to that thread from when you were a teacher, um, but with statistics? So is that kind of built in to try to give some objects or some sort of you know visual display or, or maybe a context that helps the students really make sense of the statistics? Oh, yeah. we. I don't know if you've ever seen Tinkerplots. Uh-huh, yeah. Well, uh, the middle school people 
worked with Cliff Knohold on the first edition, we actually wrote a module for the second edition of CMP called Data Distributions that integrated Tinkerplots. And then the publisher wouldn't let us have the software mandated, so then we rewrote it and we had it in the teacher's edition. But we were the only ones that actually really integrated Tinkerplots. And we have a teacher in Maine who's a real expert with Tinkerplots. But the whole idea of, of that is really important. Yeah. So I want to go back to something that you mentioned. Uh, you mentioned meeting and working with Glenda Lappin on the 1991 NCTM professional standards for teaching. And a lot of listeners probably know about the 1989 curriculum standards, and then a lot of people know about the 2000 you know, principles and standards. But in 1991, there was the professional standards. And so I wanted to just ask you about what it was like working on those standards and maybe what the kind of behind the scenes was for that to come forward. Because I've heard multiple people talk about these standards as this real kind of hidden gem that almost kind of got lost because the 1989 standards became kind of the cornerstone of NCTM, but these 1991 standards have some great ideas in them as well. What was it like working on those? Well, I was very excited to be included, but the curriculum and evaluation standards were written, and then the big problem for NCTM and everybody was, but nobody knows how to teach using them. Mm -hmm. So that's where the professional standards got involved. And then there was a third document that said nobody knows how to assess, so that's where the assessment standards got. But they came one right after another, and the dilemma with the curriculum and evaluation standards is nobody had been exposed to them at all. Yeah. So we were, uh, we, there was a committee, it was Tom Cooney, myself, Deborah Ball, and Glenda Lappin. There were different strands we were working on, but we were charged with trying to write a document that would give direction for how teachers would work in doing this kind of teaching. If you're going to teach this kind of material, how would you work? Yeah. And we were able to come up with it. Um, And I have to say, it was, and I think I shared with you earlier, well, Tom Cooney is brilliant anyway, but then um, Deborah Ball, I'm sure she's been making all her contributions for several years, but it was as though she appeared and became very influential immediately. Burst on the scene. Yes. (laughs) Uh, She was a colleague of Glenda's at Michigan State University. The first meeting we had was Tom, Deborah, me, Glenda, and Deborah's brand new son, Joshua, who was laying <laughs> on a chair next to us. And Joshua was with us for three years as we wrote these standards. Mm-hmm. But the thing that Deborah had in her mind was this thing called discourse, mm-hmm. discourse in mathematics, which we now take for granted. But I remember that we wrote the standards in the first day, and there were sections to it. So the first one was the six standards about what a teacher needed to do to teach, and the first one was discourse. Mm -hmm. Um, And then there was what did you need to do to help teachers learn and so on, Mm -hmm. and what did school districts need to do to support and things like that. So they're really powerful. But then, like the other curriculum evaluation standards, they went through a year's review at at national meetings, and I would walk around those meetings, and you'd hear math educators saying, discourse, what's discourse? What is that supposed to mean? What mm. does it mean to talk about discourse? Mm. And so it was when that, that all came out. And so that got done, and the document got finished, but it was probably way too soon for anybody to be ready for it. Mm-hmm. They were because, still processing the curriculum standards. Right, and yeah. if you go down the, the road there, you've got Peg Smith and her group that did all that task framework mm-hmm. work, and... So she was playing off people not knowing how to do uh, what the curriculum and evaluation standards said. Uh, the thinking through a lesson protocol came mm-hmm. out of Peg Smith's work, which was a way to get teachers to think more deeply about how you do that. A more recent book, Classroom Discussions by Suzanne Chapin and her group, mm-hmm. is a way to help teachers learn how to talk in a math classroom so they get kids thinking on the table. Yeah. So really, the curriculum and evaluation standards was very pivotal. 
it influenced the other documents we wrote, but it had also influenced some of these leaders who tried to pro provide more direction for us on how we actually make this happen in the classroom. Mm -hmm. I'm speaking with Susan Friel from the University of North Carolina in Chapel Hill. So as you're heading into your phased retirement, I also want to take this chance to draw on your experiences and ask you what grand challenges you see for the field. Is there something that's kind of a, a long range perspective that you have to identify something that as a field we really need to still tackle or a problem that still exists that's worth us putting effort in into the future? I think we know a lot and I think we know what we need. When anyone turns to me and say, I never could do math, I always look at them and say, you give me a week and I will make it available to you. And I mean it, mm -hmm. but it never gets there. And I was with a, a colleague who's serving on a dissertation committee with me. The student who's doing the dissertation is looking at student thinking in mathematics. And she said, well, don't teachers already do that? And the student and I looked at each other and laughed and said, no. Yeah. But she's right. Why not? Why aren't they doing it? We know all these things. We keep trying to do it again. We reinvent the wheel. We can make a difference in children's mathematical lives. That has been a passion of mine. There's no reason that any student should ever be fearful of mathematics. There's no reason any person should ever say, I could never do mathematics. Hmm. We're doing something wrong if we can't correct that problem. And I think we certainly know how to correct it. Mm -hmm. We just need to get there. And I don't know how to do that, but I do think we do, mm -hmm. we do need to get there. So the, you see it as this continuing grand challenge of taking some of these solutions that have been pretty well articulated and un understood, but trying to make them more the reality for students and learners' actual experiences. Well, maybe it's scale-up. I mean, the Classroom Discussion Books by Suzanne Chapin and her group mm -hmm. is extremely powerful in helping teachers figure out how to ask questions in classrooms. Mm -hmm. I've used it with pre-service teachers. I've, I won't do a professional development activity without doing an hour and a half on that first, because mm -hmm. I'm going to want you to talk about problem solving, but you don't know how to ask questions. Mm -hmm. Take these and start here. It will get you to do that. I want my colleagues to know that. Don't go out and reinvent the wheel. There are lots of other discussion books that are really good, too, that you should look at as well. But there are tools that we have. The CGI work is incredibly powerful. Emson and Levy's fraction book, nobody should be without. You mm -hmm. should be looking at that and unpacking it. I've spent uh, years doing that with teachers in book studies and stuff. Some mm -hmm. of the best material in the world. And then the CGI work is also that. Mm -hmm. But we, we too quickly want to leave it. You've got you to sit. On to the next thing. You've got to of, sit and work with kids. Yeah. I go out and work with kids and work with teachers and keep unpacking what's going on so they can make mm -hmm. some sense of it. Mm -hmm. So a lot of it is maybe the tendency of scholars to be on to the next thing. And also this, there's some systemic issues, right, that push people to go on to right. the next thing, right? Because right? if, if we already know a lot of things about discourse or about fractions, mm -hmm. then the next grant needs to be about something else or something, you know, beyond that. But maybe we need to find a way as a field to take things that have a lot of merit and value and actually sit with them and really try to expand them outward instead of moving to something down the road. That's very well said. And I would say uh, there's a couple of student, graduate students and myself, and I think we know that for fourth grade fractions. If anybody wants to talk to me, I can tell you what you should do. <laughs> I think we got it down pat. And Emson and Levy is right at the heart of it. <laughs> Well, Susan will be glad to hear that down just yeah. down the hall from me. So this is great speaking with you. I want to ask you one final question. So you've had this career that started kind of interestingly. I don't think I've heard that sort of a beginning to a mathematics teaching and then mathematics education career. But we're very glad that you did end up doing so much in mathematics education and stats education. But 
If you were not in math education at all, and you had some sort of alternative career that you had pursued in your life, what might that have been? I think this life was supposed to be doing this. I think I was directed to teaching. I was moved to go these places that I went to. As I mentioned to you briefly earlier, maybe I would have done Dancing with the Stars because I have done ballroom <laughs> dancing oh, on the really? side. I like ballroom dancing a lot. Yeah. But uh, and that's where I may go next now. Oh, but, great! Yeah. But uh, meaningful learning. I have. I have been. I've never been bored. I've always been engaged. I love my work. I'm not sorry to be finished with it now, but mm -hmm. I have loved every minute of it. Mm -hmm. And I've treasured every opportunity to meet the people I've met, to work with the children I've worked with, to work with the teachers I've worked with. Well, thank you so much. That sounds great. And thank you so much for sharing your perspective with us. Well, thank you for letting me come. <laughs>